This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. like take a moment to turn there there are bibles available in your pews again the passage is luke 4 14 through 30 please stand if you are able for the reading of god's word <coughs> and jesus returned in the power of the spirit to galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. Uh, We are looking at the Gospel of Luke, as you can tell, um, and we will be doing so until just after Easter. And uh, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, uh, the question that we want to keep asking is, uh, what does Luke say about the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is one of, if not the biggest theme in the Gospel of Luke. And I think that this particular passage tells us that the kingdom of God is like the Jubilee 
like the Jubilee. Now, that is not a word that you often hear, and uh, you might have absolutely no context for that word. Um, you know, what do you think of when you think of the word Jubilee? There's a, uh, there's a French dessert that has cherries on it. That's one thing um, you might be thinking of. There's, a, there's an X-Men character who's a mutant called Jubilee. For me, what I think of is uh, Bono, the U2's lead singer Bono. And um, back in uh, 2000, a little before 2000, he was on this big campaign called the Jubilee 2000. And what he was pushing for is all the... Uh, the world leaders would forgive the debts of the poorest countries by the turn of the millennium. And actually, it did a lot of good. And it was called the Jubilee 2000. And the reason that uh, Bono called it that is because of the Israelite year of Jubilee, which is uh, sadly very uh, little appreciated. In the Old Testament, uh, it is the greatest um, part of the entire Jewish calendar. It's in Leviticus 25, and I would highly encourage you to read that chapter. Leviticus 25. Not a book that uh, people go to for highlights, but every 50 years in the land of Israel, they would blow trumpets all over the land, and the year of Jubilee was announced. And everyone had to, at that moment, stop working. Could not work anymore. And then for the entire year, you could not work. So it was an entire Sabbath. Imagine that, a one-year sabbatical where you don't do anything for an entire year. Not only that, but the land was returned to its original owners. So all generational poverty was annihilated because the original people who owned the land is given back to them. And not only that, but all the debts that you had uh, were forgiven. So if you owed anything, it was forgiven you. And then finally, all of the people who were slaves in the land of Israel were set free. So land returned, debts forgiven, slaves set free, complete rest. Now, that is the image that Jesus grabs a hold of when he preaches his very first sermon. Uh, Perhaps. This is his uh, inauguration address. It's definitely his first sermon to his hometown people of Nazareth. It says in verse 16, he, he went to Nazareth where he was brought up. So he's in his hometown synagogue, and, and he grabs a hold of uh, Isaiah 61, where the prophet Isaiah thought that the Jubilee was such a joyous, outlandishly, over-the-top idea that he said that, that is what, uh, the he- that's what heaven's going to be like. That's what the new creation of God is going to be like. It's going to be like the Jubilee. So Isaiah 61 is a creative rendition of the Jubilee applied to forever. And what the, uh, the new world looks like. And then Jesus quotes uh, from Isaiah 61. And look in verse 19. It says, uh, this is the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the Jubilee. So uh, Jesus found that place in Isaiah. He wasn't just going to preach on whatever was read that day. He, he went up there knowing that this is going to be my inaugural address, my messianic inaugural address. You know, my first sermon was a licensure exam. His first sermon was to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand and that he was the Messiah and that this is what the kingdom was going to be like, like the Jubilee. So I want to look at two characteristics of the Jubilee One is obviously the freedom, the deliverance, the 
debts canceled, the slaves set free, the rest. That's one aspect. All the action that you have in the Jubilee and how that for Jesus was a, a great picture of what his ministry would look like, what the kingdom was going to look like. But the other aspect that's actually more prominent, if you look at verse 18 and, and what he's talking about when the Jubilee comes, you'll notice that probably the most important verb there, it's repeated three times, is to proclaim. So in uh, verse 18, you see proclaiming liberty, proclaiming good news, and proclaiming favor. And so part of the kingdom of God that he brings is not only the jubilee itself, but to actually talk about the jubilee and to proclaim the presence of the kingdom. So proclamation is actually part of the new world that he's bringing, is that we talk about the new world. So those two things I want to talk about, the proclaiming uh, first, because I think that's the more significant of the two, actually. And then finally, the, the freedom. So first, new, a new kind of speech that the Jubilee brings. And then a, a new kind of deliverance, a new kind of freedom uh, that it brings as well. So those two things. And first of all, the, the speech. And uh, lest you think, oh, it's just proclamation. It's just talk. It's all mere talk. Uh, speech is an incredibly important part of life. It is one of the most distinctive things about humans. And when... George Orwell thinks of a government uh, in 1984, this totalitarian government he's trying to envision that controls everything. What they try to control most of all is the people's speech. They call it newspeak. And uh, Oceana, through Big, Big Brother, has diminished the amount of vocabulary that people can use. So that they just kind of pulverize words so that they can crush creative thought and crush self-expression. And if you limit the number of words people know, then it limits their thoughts. And so that's what he does uh, with the new speak. Big Brother takes away words and he impoverishes the imagination by completely controlling language. And so instead of great, they just use plus good. So you just keep one word good and you just add plus to it. So instead of great, you get plus good. Instead of fantastic, you get double plus good. And on and on. Instead of quickly, speed-wise. So he ran very quickly becomes he runned plus speed wise. And so you, in the back of the book, they have this index of all the new, the new speak. And it's absolutely horrible. It's, uh, it's disgusting. But um, if reduced language leads to restricted thought, then Jesus is saying that I'm going to bring new language in the world that will set your mind free, set your thought free. I'm going to begin to proclaim myself and teach my people to proclaim that there's this new thing coming. It's a new way of talking. And it sets us free from uh, superficial, two-dimensional, uh, worldly conversations that are confined to what's going on around us, secular things. Uh, so much of our conversation is like that. Whether they be staff luncheons or a cocktail party or an office meeting, uh, just so much talking about Nothing beyond this world. And of course, that's important. But like, let's say 90% of talking should be that way. Okay. But shouldn't at least 10% be about things beyond this world? You know, food, the weather, sports, work, shopping, gossip, politics, all these things we talk about, talk about, talk about. And Christ is trying to bring a new way of, of speaking into that. Uh, it's kind of like the voices of the adults and Charlie Brown on the phone, like wah, wah, wah. I think that's the way a lot of our conversation goes. And there's a podcast that uh, my friends tell me about called Sleep With Me. Has anybody used that to go to sleep? 
If you don't use it to go to sleep and you have a hard time sleeping, you should look it up. Uh, it, it's intentionally designed to help people fall asleep because the guy's talk is so boring. And he, he has actually, this guy named Drew Ackerman has found a way to talk in a, such a boring way. He tells these ridiculous stories. And I was really tempted to read one, but I won't do it. But the New Yorker did an article on him, and, he, and they explain it like this. He keeps his voice very gravelly. He's from Boston. It's a very strong Boston accent. He keeps it very gravelly at the bottom of his vocal range. It's always very low. It's very quiet. And his sentences are maze-like. Maze-like. And they turn on countless ifs and ors and so and uh, if and very slowly. And he drifts off into pointless tangents all the time. He's always going off into things that make no sense. And he doubles back and then he asks himself if he really means exactly what he just said. And you've got to hear it. I don't think I could go to sleep because I just start laughing when I hear it. But if you think about the conversations we have, um, you know, I think they say that 20% of Americans did not have a single conversation in 2019. 20% of Americans have never gotten beyond this world and what they talked about. In other words, when they, when they define a spiritual conversation, it's like, did anything transcendent, uh, did God come up? Did anything about God? Did did life and death and heaven and hell and eternity and all these things. Is, is that a part of it? And 20%, one-fifth of Americans did not have a single conversation about that. That's amazing. That's as if there's like a big brother out there trying to control our language. Uh, 30% had one or two conversations. And 7% had regular conversation. So are you among the 7%? I don't know what regular means, but I think... It probably means about every week. Um, you should ask yourself, is, is that ever happening to you, like, weekly, where you would bring up... Uh, and I think, actually, among the people in this room, I think a lot of you do. And um, that's really encouraging to me that that, that is the case. Maybe that's because I'm talking to you, and you're always talking about it because I'm your pastor. But I think that... I, I, I suspect that many of you do. Only 13% of Christians do. So only 13% of people who are polar who were Christians, said that they talked about it every week. Um, but I think that one thing about this, what we're doing right now, um, that's very hard and very odd, and one reason it's very hard because it's very seldom done, is that we gather to talk in new ways. Like we say, let's figure out how to talk um, like real people about God and about things we don't normally think about. So you could say that this is a, this is a place of intentional spiritual conversation. And it didn't start with a church. It started long, long ago with synagogues. And synagogues were these things that started popping up all over the empire when the temple was destroyed and the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. And as soon as that happened, they start gathering together in little cells because they can't go to the temple anymore. And they start talking about God. They start talking about Yahweh. And so in 16, I think it's really significant that Jesus went to the synagogue. On the Sabbath, one day of the week, they set aside, we're going to talk about God, intentionally as a group. And um, this is actually the earliest information we have on synagogue worship. So what we see here is what historians would first go to as uh, evidence about what they did in synagogues. And if you look in verse 17 and 20, I think it's interesting that Luke, who was a master of few words... He, he mentions these scrolls twice. Like, why, did he, why does he mention the scrolls? He talks about in verse 17 that, that, that he unrolled the scroll. 
And in the synagogues, one wall was just a bunch of scrolls. I've actually been to a replica of the synagogue in Nazareth. It's in the Bible Museum in Washington. It's fascinating. But a wall of scrolls, he would go and pick one up and they roll it out. These things were invaluable. No printing press. They wrote them all down. They couldn't put the whole Old Testament together. It was just a series of scrolls. And then in verse 20, he rolled the scroll up and gave it back. So the synagogue is a place of talk. And uh, that's why church, as kind of synagogues, uh, are places of conversation and new ways of talking. That's why we don't show movies. And we, um, we, we try not to imitate the culture, which is very speech-averse. Um, it says in verse 16, he stood up to read. And then it says in verse 20, he sat down to speak. So if I was a Jewish rabbi, uh, I, would have, I would have taken a seat to teach. And um, so we don't do it the same way that now. But we actually don't know how long he spoke. Um, but if he were a Catholic, the average sermon is 14 minutes. And if he were a mainline Protestant, it's 25 minutes. And if he were an evangelical, it's 39 minutes. And if he were black Protestant, 54 minutes. So that's actually the breakdown of how long those different denominations. We don't know what he did, but we know that whatever he did, it was marvelous. Because in verse 22, it says they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And I think it's amazing that you could marvel. I don't know if you've ever marveled when you've heard a speech, when you've heard a a president give a a talk, um, inaugural address, State of the Union speech. When you've heard a preacher preach, have you ever marveled at the gracious words? I love that humans are built so that we can marvel when we hear words. That you can read something uh, or hear something today that will change your day, your entire day, and make make it a marvelous day, make it fabulous and fantastic. And I hope that's motivating to you to try to talk in a way uh, that leads people deeper into life, into what's real. Verse 18, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me. And you see that word, and you're like, what does anointing mean? Well, anointing was like a shower. It was the closest thing they had to a shower. They would pour oil on their head and it would clean them. And um, that was the closest thing they had to becoming freshened up by a shower. And so if you think about anointing, um, if you think about the Holy Spirit coming upon you and what it means to speak in a new way, it's kind of like when you take a shower when you're really dirty and you, you feel fresh. Like when, you, you know, when someone comes out of the shower and they have a towel on their hair, they're, they're drying their hair and they smell good, they look fresh and clean. That's what the anointing of the Holy Spirit was like. And so when you're anointed by the Spirit, when you're full of the Spirit, uh, one of the things that happens is you speak in new ways. And so in the Gospel of Luke, it's fascinating that whenever the Spirit comes on someone, and this is true in the book of Acts 2, which Luke wrote, they generally start talking. So here's just three examples all before chapter 3. Luke 141, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed, blessed are you among women. Luke 167, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Luke 227, Simeon came and the spirit came upon him in the temple and he said, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. And so when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, they talk, they speak in new ways. And again, ask yourself, have you done this? Are you doing this? Are are you interested in doing this? Uh, Good news, liberty, favor in verse 18. Do you do you speak these ways? And I um, 
I was talking to a guy this week who gave me an extreme example of this, fascinating example of speaking about liberty and deliverance. And he said that the Spirit sometimes gives him these missions, like, you know, Tom Cruise gets in uh, Mission Impossible, like, go over to the specific bench in Ronaldo Gardens, and a guy is going to come by wearing a Chicago White Sox sweater. And when that happens, go tell him that God loves him. I mean, this, is, this guy hears that somehow or sees that. And so sure enough, my friend sees the guy. You know, he's hoping there's no one with a Chicago White Sox sweater. He's like, thank goodness I don't have to do that. But then sure enough, the guy comes by with a White Sox. And he's like, I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy. Um, and I, I hate to have to do this. But I, God told me to tell you that he loves you. You know, so sorry. And then goes away. But um, that's an extreme version of being anointed with the Spirit to speak. And whenever we think about evangelism, we have a lot of negative images come into our mind about twisting someone's arm or, you know, forcing, like shoehorning a conversation where it doesn't belong, hijacking a conversation. Awkwardness often comes to mind. But uh, there are ways to do this that are creative and uh, ingenious and uh, where you're, you're looking for opportunities to talk. Uh, where it doesn't have to be so awkward. We were um, at the famous toastery, uh, which many of you hate, uh, but I do sometimes eat there. And um, Kathleen Baker, silver medalist swimmer uh, from Winston-Salem, she was sitting there, and my daughter's a huge fan, so my, my daughter said, There's, that's Kathleen Baker over there. And we were like, oh, let's go talk to her. And my daughter's like, no, 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 that, don't, don't embarrass me like that. But my brother was there. You know, Peter... Peter is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is a bold man. So Peter's like, I'm going to play the cancer card on her. So he went over to her, and Peter's like, I'm struggling with cancer right now, and my niece is over there, and she would love to have a picture taken with you. So Peter brings her over there, and Kathleen Baker uh, is so nice, and she takes a picture, uh, and we talk about how much we admire her swimming ability and stuff like that. And then my wife, Margie, says, uh, I just want you to know that although you're a great swimmer, What really makes you special is that you're a child of God. And Kathleen Baker did not know what to do with that. She went back to her seat. But she had been blessed. And uh, that ability to speak uh, is a gift from God. That I don't have the gift, but I'm still called to try to do that. And so are you. I think we're all called to do that. And when we are most fully alive, I am convinced that we speak about God. And we do it with excitement and fervor um, and conviction in, in a way that it's not off-putting. Um, we are most fully alive when we talk about God. That's, that's what we're doing here. You know, again, we're chanting back and forth. We're singing words. Um, I'm speaking words right now. It's a very auditory religion that we believe in. There are other religions where you hum or... Uh, you don't use words, or it's just visual, or it's just action. Christianity, Judaism, extremely verbal. Very, very verbal. And you can't, you can't do that in a podcast. You can't do that alone. This is, like, this is our speech therapy where we gather and we teach each other to talk, to talk in new ways. That's why you talk as well as people up here talk. We, talk, we all talk in the service because of that. Now, sadly, uh, a lot of our conversation is not anointed and not filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, on Christmas in my wife's hometown, Tarbra, 
Uh, we were opening presents, and I was watching the Clemson game at the same time, Clemson-Ohio State. That's not a good idea to begin with. And then I was on one of these ridiculous rants where I was just saying negative things uh, over and over and over again, partly because I was mad at Ohio State because they were winning, and I was like, they're, they're getting so lucky. What a horrible call. That guy can't play football. You know, he is so overrated. And I just go on and on about these things. Bill Belichick is, does nothing but cheat. And Kobe Bryant, I can't stand Kobe Bryant. He's the most selfish player ever. And just saying things that are really, really dumb, uh, talking about politics in the same way, you know, all the Democratic candidates, Trump, and every, every politician, I was just smearing everyone. And, um, and then my father-in-law said, uh, I wonder what he says about us when we're not around. And it was a joke, but it also really convicted me that uh, I'm on one of these rants. And, uh, and he was smiling and laughing. It was in good humor, but it was true. Uh, that my, and and I, I bet you also sometimes will leave a room and just say, why did I say those things? Why was I just mouthing off like that? And that's what the Spirit is coming to correct. And, and luckily, I caught myself there, and, or he caught me, and I said, that's not who I am. Like, that's who I used to be. Um, before I was a Christian, uh, I, I would curse uh, a lot of times, both out loud and in my head, uh, in, in really disgusting ways. And uh, I realized that's not me anymore. I would, I would talk people down a lot, uh, especially behind their back. And that, I said, that's not me. And I would utter, my main verbal sin is just uttering judgmental blanket statements. And that's what I was doing there. And I said, that's not who I am. In fact, when I became a Christian, um, I started saying things that I couldn't believe I was saying. I told my, my roommate, uh, who was Catholic, who I would mock for believing in God. And I said, Don, I think your prayers uh, might have been used by God to bring me to Christ. And uh, I told Michelle, look, I'm not like these crazy Christians out there, but I did read this book called Mere Christianity, and it changed my life. And I told my cousin Joshua, I said, you're going to think I'm out of my mind, but something happened to me in my life. And I was just proclaiming I could speak in a new way because of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first point, uh, a new speech. The second point is that there are not just words, but there are actions. And you see that in verse 18, where he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And again, in the Jubilee, slaves were set free, debts were forgiven, the poor got their land back, all these things. These are things, these are actions that happened. And Jesus said, that is my ministry right there. That's what I'm about. I'm not about just talking, but about doing. And um, there are two people he mentioned in this passage that are specific examples of the captive and the oppressed and the poor that are being set free. And those are, in verse 26, the widow in the land of Sidon. And in verse 27, Naaman the Syrian. And this is when his uh, hometown congregation started to get mad at him because they're jealous because he was reading their mind and saying that you guys are jealous about Capernaum and that I did all these miracles there and I haven't done them here. And so now you're upset with me for saying these things. And, and so he tells them about how God has always come to outsiders. He's always been on the favor on behalf of the outsider. And in this case, both of these people, the widow, you can go back and read about them in the Old Testament. The widow and the general, Nahum and the Syrian, they were both from outside of Israel. They were not from within the covenant people. So they would, the Jews would have been tempted to despise these two. Now, one was, uh, as a general, very powerful, uh, a Syrian general who would have oppressed and killed a lot of Israelites. His name was Naaman, but he was a leper. And so he was untouchable. He was lonely. No one had ever really 
touched him in years because they would get his leprosy. So you have Naaman over here that Jesus mentioned. You have the widow from Sidon over here who is uh, starving. There's no food in the land. She's impoverished. She's helpless. She's vulnerable. Uh, she would have to be, become a prostitute at some point as a widow or else she would just die. And Jesus says, um, these are the people that the Jubilee is for. This is, this is what I've come to be about. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, that is absolutely the case. Because to these two people, God sent his greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to these two people. And he freed them. He delivered them from God. And you can imagine their reaction being shocked that the great Jewish prophet Elijah or Elisha would come into their place and help them. And, and they were both, uh, the widow was saved from starvation. Naaman was saved from leprosy. And just think about what, uh, what God has done. If, if, you, if you believe in, in Christ and if you have been set free by, by Christ from whatever it is, think about the things that he's delivered you from. And the way that he has brought the Jubilee into your life. And I, I think about, um, for, you know, for me and for many people, it's not as much uh, the things that Naaman or the widow were delivered from, but loneliness. Uh, absolutely. Alienation from people. Feeling like nobody likes you. Uh, feeling shame. Feeling ugly or left out or awkward. These are things that very, very much like Naaman. Very, very much like the widow deep and abiding ways that we need to be set free. Uh, Zacchaeus was a man that Jesus met who was absolutely captured by his greed. Uh, He was a slave to his greed, and Jesus set him free. And what does he go and do? He becomes generous. He becomes incredibly generous and gives away half his money. And then another person, uh, the demoniac, Jesus meets a man who is possessed by demons. He's mad. Uh, He is he is filled with insanity and, and Jesus sets him free into proclamation and he goes and he's an evangelist to his own people. And I think that uh, like those two, we often move towards people in our ministry uh, that we were like when we were delivered. Um, I know that that's true of me, that uh, we are often doing things uh, where we found our bondage and we're set free. So I know that some of you are counselors and you are releasing people from depression or anxiety or whatever it is they come there uh, for help with. And, and you should think about that as part of the jubilee of Jesus. And teachers who are also bringing in a kind of a deliverance, uh, setting people free from what are the students, whether it be ignorance or fear, um, there's a deliverance there, coaches who have kids that are, um, feel so worthless and uh, unaccepted. And then oftentimes a coach will give a kid confidence and set them free um, from no self-worth. Lawyers uh, who set companies and people free from injustice. Uh, medical professionals certainly setting patients free from sickness. And homemakers setting children free from homelessness. And uh, friends, I think all of us are friends who are called to set free our friends from loneliness. Um, Whatever it is, uh, there's nothing like seeing people set free by by Jesus. And in a way, participating in the Jubilee, 
And um, the Jubilee, I think, you know, was like the greatest idea ever conceived of. The, the poor slave, uh, the debtor, completely set free. But the thing about the Jubilee that's, that's odd, you might find very odd, is um, they never kept it. That Israel, not once did they actually do it. Um, and I think that you can imagine why. Uh, you can imagine someone in Israel who is very powerful saying, you know, I, lend, I, I lent this person thousands of dollars, and now I'm supposed to just let that debt be canceled? No way. So they're not interested. And then somebody who has purchased a slave that works for them, they're going to be like, I'm not letting that slave go free. I'm not interested in that. And then the person who's working their land and is uh, very much trying to control things, and they raise all this uh, this food, you know, they've, they have, have all these crops now. They're not going to stop working and trust God to give them a year's worth of food. So you can imagine that, um, that the Jubilee was very upsetting to certain people. It kind of would be like if a teacher said, I'm just going to give everyone in the class an A. At the last day of class, they just announced that. You can imagine that although the, the bad students would be very happy about that, the, the good students would be very upset about that. And, uh, They would be like the people of Nazareth who drove him out of town in verse 29 and brought him to the brow of a hill to throw him down. Because I think about the thing about the Jubilee, if we're really honest about it, is that uh, we love our own merit and we love earning things and we feel like we deserve what we have. We have a kind of a death grip on um, earning And so when the Jubilee comes, it's not quite as good as you first thought it would be because it just guts you of all those things, all your merit, all your earning, all your deserving. Um, The Nazarenes tried to kill him. And it says in verse 30 that that he he passed through their midst and he went away. But they couldn't get the job done. But the scribes and Pharisees did get the job done. The the religious leaders, they did get the job done and they, they crucified him. Because they did not like his ministry of Jubilee. They, they did not enjoy the fact that he was doing these things, and they crucified him. And I think that God obviously knew. God knew that Israel would not keep the Jubilee. When he, he wasn't disappointed in the sense like, I can't believe they didn't do that. They were going to do that. They never did that. He knew they weren't going to keep it, but he gave it as a sign of what it was really about, which was his son. Because in verse 21, it says that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he just read Isaiah 61. So what he's saying is today, as I sit here in the synagogue, the Jubilee is happening. It's being fulfilled. And if I were in the synagogue, I'd be like, I don't see any slaves set free. I don't see anyone's debt canceled. I don't see any land. I don't see rest happening. Like, how is it that you're saying you have fulfilled that scripture? And I think that he would say just by sitting here right now with you. This is the living presence of what the Jubilee was always meant to be, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is, he is the, the Jubilee. His presence is that. And so when anyone met him, Zacchaeus or the demoniac, whoever met him, whoever entered a relationship with him, they were set free. The, uh, the Samaritan woman was set free from having to always have a man. And Matthew was set free from slavery and from operating as a crony for Rome's oppressive tax collection. And Mary uh, was set free from having to give her body away every night. And 
Saul was set free from violent racism. Whenever anyone meets Jesus, uh, you enter the Jubilee. That he is the Jubilee and you enter into that uh, because he died and rose from the grave. Um, And the proclamation of this table is that because he died and rose from the grave, um, that all of our sins are canceled. All our debts are canceled. And all captivity to sin is is annihilated um, at this table. And uh, you can probably tell that we take this table very seriously. We do this every week. Um, We love for people to come here who don't believe, like Austin said in that welcome, like Michael prayed. We we want people to come here who are searching. And so if you're not sure what you believe about Christ, then we are so glad you're here. You're welcome. Um, But we also don't want to force anyone into hypocrisy. So feel no pressure uh, to partake of this meal, just as I hope you felt no pressure to give to the offering. Um, but as you see people come up here, just know that, that those of us who are going to take it are not saying we're better than you. In fact, we're saying we need grace. We are debtors. We are slaves to our sin, and we are looking to God to release us. So on the night he was betrayed...